Hi, I'm Nanika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. It's been a month since Russia invaded Ukraine. Over three and a half million people have left Ukraine, fleeing to neighboring countries. Slovakia is on Ukraine's western edge and has taken in more than 250,000 refugees so far. Most of them are women and children. And while they're no longer in a war zone, the dangers don't end once they've crossed the border. It's a tough journey to get here. And so when you do, and someone pulls up in a car and they say, I can take you to a hotel, I've got a car, don't worry about the bus, you can come with me, come to this hotel. Those are the very conditions that can lead to exploitation. That's The Globe's Janice Dixon. For the past couple of weeks, she's been reporting from Slovakia's busiest border crossing with Ukraine. We reached Janice in the capital, Bratislava, and she'll tell us about the challenges faced by women and children who are fleeing the war. And before we get started, a warning that this episode discusses human trafficking and rape. So please take care. This is The Decibel. Janice, it's so good to see you. Good to see you, too. So you've been at the border of Slovakia and Ukraine, talking to Ukrainians who fled the war. What have they told you about the homes that they lost? Something I noticed right away uh, when I was speaking with refugees fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, both here in Bratislava at the central train station and along the border and at reception centers that are set up to welcome refugees is that when you ask them about fleeing uh, home and the journey to Slovakia, almost instinctively, many show photos of home. You know, their message was Russia is targeting civilians. That is what they wanted to show. You know, this is my house and this is my neighborhood and look, look what's happening here. Are there any specific photos that you remember seeing that that stand out to you? There's one. um, I met a woman at the border and it was a really cold night. Uh, She had just walked across. It was, uh, you know, around 9 p.m. And she showed me a photo of her apartment building and she was supposed to move in with her husband. Um, She said that she and her husband are both physicians and they were supposed to move in the day the war began and their building was struck. And so she showed me videos of her neighbors, you know, extinguishing a fire that had destroyed one apartment. It it wasn't hers, but, you know, she said just luckily she wasn't there. Wow. Yeah, there was um, a woman who I spoke with for, for quite a while, actually, about her experience sheltering with her husband and, and two young boys in a bomb shelter below their building. And um, she was showing pictures of them and their neighbors in this sort of cramped area where um, she said they didn't have much access to food and medicine was running out. And she said it took her five attempts to make soup because she would go upstairs, try to, you know, make a little bit of progress and then have to go back right back down again. A lot of women I've talked to here have said that when they hear sounds now, it it can be quite 
frightening, reminding them of the shelling and the sound of airplanes at home and that they're really worried about their children and how they will be affected by this. And so when they arrive in Slovakia, where are they staying there? Right now, what happens is, you know, people are wheeling their luggage or what they have, maybe just a backpack across the border. There are buses at the ready to pick them up. There are stands along the border. There's, um, you know, a soup stand and clothing and free supplies for everyone. But they're pretty efficiently moving people along. And from there, they're going to, it's a sportsplex, about a 40-minute drive, I suppose, from the border. And there, most people are uh, continuing on to other countries, especially if they have friends or relatives that can help them. But increasingly, there will be people without ties. And those are people who are going to need the most support. And a lot of people who I spoke with said that they also want to stay in Slovakia because it's close to home and that they really don't care where they go. They just want to be close to home. Uh, this The sportsplex that you mentioned, could you describe it for us? What, what does it look like inside there? Sure. So inside the sportsplex, they are uh, registering people with uh, local officials and it's um, quite a formal atmosphere, I suppose. But outside, there's a massive tent, which is full of sort of green cots um, and blankets and places where people can nap and um, relax with one another. There's another tent uh, full of picnic tables where volunteers are dishing out food and um, people can eat there. There's a tent full of clothes. There's a tent with psychology services. There's a tent for pets because a lot of people have pets. So they actually had a tent set up with stuff um, that pets might need. So there's, um, there's a lot there. Yeah. And so you mentioned that this process is actually fairly smooth at this point. Can you give us a sense, I guess, of the government involvement here? What's the response been like from the government to help these refugees? Well, the support has been pretty grassroots, um, from my observations so far. At the train station along the border, there's a lot of volunteers, a lot of NGOs, um, and I I know the government is going to take over some of the uh, services and some of the support at the main border. And there's support from local officials too. I know here in Bratislava, it's the city that has provided a lot of um, staff and volunteers and sort of physical supplies like food and accommodation. But it really is remarkable how many volunteers are everywhere. And so these are just like average people kind of mobilizing on their own or with a small NGO or something that are that are going to help them. That's right. And there's also a lot of Ukrainian volunteers. They are providing translation um, and many have just arrived and they they want to give back. And so there are a lot of um, a lot of Ukrainian volunteers here. Are these people then who have fled themselves and, and want to volunteer their services at these places? That's right. They have fled within the past couple of weeks. So, Janice, you mentioned a few of the women you, you've been talking to. Who are the people who are coming across the border here? A lot of women and and children, their homes have been destroyed or their neighborhoods, or often they say, you know, the war is just getting too close to them. One woman told me that her house was shaking from a school that was bombed nearby. And that did it for her that, you know, everyone wants to stay. 
Um, but as soon as they feel like it's too unsafe or they can't get food and they, they want to save their children too. That's another thing I've heard often is that, um, you know, they would like to stay at home and stay with their husbands, but they, they want to get their children out. Let's talk about children here for a moment. Are most coming across with people they know then? Definitely most children are coming across with um, their mother or um, a relative. But uh, what I've heard from a lot of organizations that are providing support here is that there are unaccompanied children. Many of them, perhaps their parents, want to stay back and fight together. So they'll bring their child to the border and then have a relative meet them at the border. There is some concern about that transfer process and making sure it all goes very smoothly. Uh, sometimes in quite chaotic moments at the border when there's a lot of people, children can become separated from their parents at that point. Or um, I saw an example of someone running back to get something in, in hopes of meeting up with their child after. So there's all of these moments. I, I don't think it necessarily means children walking across with nobody, but there are chances um, in the chaos for them to become separated. Have you heard any specific stories of, of kids coming across on their own? Yeah, there is a really well-known case of an 11-year-old boy whose mom uh, was widowed and needed to take care of her grandmother uh, back in Ukraine. And so the 11-year-old, with just a phone number on his hand, walked and took a train uh, all the way to um, to Slovakia and then was reunited with his his brothers and and uh, siblings here. Wow, that's I mean, that's a long journey for a kid to make. And you can understand why people would be worried about such a young kid doing that on their own. Yes. And actually, there's an update to that story, because I read uh, recently that his mother and grandmother have actually made it here. Oh, so they're reunited then. They are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good to hear. So when it comes to to unaccompanied kids fleeing the war, Janice, do we have a sense even of, of how many kids we're talking about in this situation? So a volunteer I spoke with on the Slovak border mentioned there would be hundreds of children in this situation. And a woman I spoke with in Poland um, with Save the Children said she estimates there are about 1,500 unaccompanied children so far in that country. Now, there are also a lot of children from orphanages coming to uh, these neighboring countries, and often they are coming on buses and they're organized. So those numbers would likely include that group as well. We should point out we're talking about women and children because it's mainly women and children fleeing the war uh, because men 18 to 60 have been conscripted to fight in Ukraine. They, of course, face a huge risk, too. And I think we can understand the risks of fighting war there. What are the dangers, though, that women and children suffer during a, a situation like this? They're traveling here, you know, exhausted after having fled their homes and leaving their loved ones behind, and they're vulnerable. And a lot of these bordering countries with Ukraine have fortunately seen an outpouring of volunteers. But what 
aid organizations are worried about is someone pretending to be a well-meaning volunteer and take advantage of women and children while they are their most tired and they are feeling desperate. And so there are signs everywhere in every train station I visited or, or had to travel through throughout the country warning of the signs of human trafficking. And I know volunteers are, you know, giving information to refugees about knowing whose car you get into. Is there evidence that trafficking is happening? I heard from a lawyer that's working at the train station here, and she's with Human Rights League, um, an organization here in Slovakia. And she told me that she heard a woman was on a train here to Bratislava from uh, Vienna, and she overheard a couple of guys behind her on the train um, saying, okay, we're going to go to the station and take three Ukrainian girls. And that's the way they were talking. And so that woman reported it to the police. And they are really on the lookout for this uh, now and um, and trying to prevent it and doing everything they can to prevent it from happening. Yeah. And I know, Janice, I know you've reported on on human trafficking in the past as well. I guess, can you help us understand specifically with this situation when, when people are fleeing a war zone, what are the conditions here that create um, a kind of a, an atmosphere that may be ripe for this kind of trafficking um, and exploitation? We do see this in, in war settings. Um, historically, it's the risk of gender violence against women and girls, the risk of exploitation is high and it is because they are at their most vulnerable and they do need support. And if you're traveling for days, if you haven't eaten, um, you know, one woman told me she and her son had been just eating cookies, basically, you know, so it's, it's a tough journey to get here. And so when you do and someone pulls up in a car and they say, I can take you to a hotel. I've got a car. Don't worry about the bus. You can come with me, come to this hotel. Those are the very conditions that can lead to exploitation. A lot of people, a lot of, you know, aid workers and volunteers who, who are working at the border and working at these reception centers are now really actively asking people, you know, who are you? Um, and, that sort of thing, and making sure that people know who they're getting in a vehicle with and where they're going next. So I think the thing that we we tend to think about here is the risk of, of sexual violence um, against people who are, are vulnerable and in these vulnerable positions. Have there been any reported cases of violence against these refugees? Um, there have. Recently in Poland, a man was suspected of raping a 19-year-old refugee who he had offered shelter. Um, he has been detained, um, but this is one example of what could happen if someone gets in the wrong vehicle. So there are very real threats here. And so it's, I guess it's still kind of early in this situation, Janice. I, from the people that you're talking to, though, are they expecting that we're going to continue hearing, unfortunately, these kinds of stories? I mean, I think they're hoping and trying to do everything they can to prevent it. And that is why there are signs everywhere. And that's why they're distributing pamphlets. And they're really trying to meet people as early as as they can when they cross the border um, to help them find their way to a safe place. 
I want to come back to the idea of, of home that we talked about right off the top here. You said that people are, are hopeful that they'll get to go back soon. Have they talked to you about what they might expect to see when they, when they do go back? Actually, a lot of people have said that they really don't know what they w- will be returning to when they eventually return and that they hope they have a home to return to. Janice, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Rose Danen. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.